Welcome to Office Hours, the social science podcast produced at the University of Minnesota, featuring conversations with prominent scholars, researchers, and other movers and shakers in the social world. This episode, we're talking with Douglas Arnold, McKnight Presidential Professor of Mathematics at the University of Minnesota. That's right, we've got a mathematician on Office Hours. Professor Arnold is active in the movement to boycott Elsevier, and we'll talk about the origins and tactics of this movement, the state of academic publishing today, and while scholars in all fields, along with the general public, should care about what's going on here. Professor Arnold, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks for giving me the opportunity to meet with your community. All right. Well, first, I think, you know, for people probably heard about what's going on. It's been in the news. Um, but can you tell us a little bit about the boycott of Elsevier? How did this get started? What's this all about? Well, it got started with a blog by Tim Gowers. Tim is a field medalist mathematician. That's our Nobel Prize at the University of Cambridge. And he wrote a blog not so different than many that have appeared, pointing out that the state of scholarly publishing in mathematics is badly broken. The prices have become truly outrageous, so they're driving our libraries to have to make very painful cuts, and yet they're giving up a product where the main content is coming from us. We write the articles, we oversee the peer review, we do the refereeing and so forth. And for what seems a modest added value uh, from the publishers, huge costs are being charged back to us. In addition, it's been a great disappointment with all the technological advances, the internet, the web, electronic manuscripts, uh, and so forth, preprint servers, that um, the gains, the potential these have for making things both better and cheaper is only partially being realized. And when you look around, well, the whole situation is quite complex. You can st- I'm sure there are people in your community who study it, and uh, we are trying. But... Uh, the basic uh, factor that controls this is not hard to find. There are some small, commer- some large, large, a small number of large, large commercial publishers that are taking incredible profits. So Elsevier, the one that um, Tim uh, focused on, made a profit of uh, over a billion dollars on a $3 billion revenue in 2010. That's 36%. That's a profit margin that would make the mafia bluff. So Tim reported some of these things. In addition to that, he pointed out that their policies on asserting intellectual rights or dissemination of reprints and so forth were offensive, and they were the major supporter of the Research Works Act, which um, was really a bill that many academics thought was very harmful. And he said, well, I'm not cooperating with them. In fact, I haven't been doing it for years. I'm not submitting manuscripts. I'm not editing. I'm not refereeing but I'm declaring it publicly. It would be nice if somebody would create a website uh, where other people who wanted to make the same declaration could do so. So that website was born a day later. A guy named Tyler Nealon created something called thecostofknowledge.com, and it took off like wildfire. So within a, a day or two, there were thousands of people pledging to boycott Elsevier. They had their option to boycott uh, refereeing editorial work and submission, or any uh, combination of those things. At the moment, there's about 8,000 signatories to it. I see about 700 of them are uh, sociologists, but the math world was where it started and it's probably where it still is where it's best known. So that's how the um, boycott got started. 
So, um, I mean, you mentioned, you, you sort of hinted at this a little bit, that Elsevier is maybe a particularly obvious choice for, for this boycott. You know, but I mean, this is a common issue with boycotts is you have to kind of pick the big symbolic target. It's why people who are worried about um, the conditions in which our technology is made, they target Apple, right? Or, you know, the, the Nike boycotts of, you know, the 90s or, or whatever. So uh, why Elsevier in particular here? Is it is it are they alone in this sort of uh, egregious uh, profit seeking behavior that you were describing? Or are they just particularly bad at it? What, what's the deal with Elsevier? So, okay, it's a pleasure talking to a sociologist who understands that you do need to target one big um, player that, rather than take on a whole industry at once, although, of course, our hope is that the, this is echoing and resounding throughout the industry. But there were definite reasons that Elsevier was the publisher that was selected for this. So part of it is size. They're the biggest. But a lot of it is a perception that they're playing this game in the most ruthless fashion. And actually, the financial numbers indicate this. It's pushing for 36% profit rates and so forth. Uh, in addition, they had just become the, the, spot, the strongest uh, lobbying sponsor of this Research Works Act. Somebody discovered that there were about 30 contributions from their executives to the congressmen who were proposing this act and had shown that the language in the act, some of it had been drafted by Elsevier. And in fact, a number of the big uh, commercial publishers decided not to take a position on Research Works Act. So that was another reason to point to them. I should point out now that as a direct result of the boycott, Elsevier withdrew their support from Research Works Act and actually the bill was declared by the sponsors dead the very same day. There are other reasons as well that Elsevier was the target. Some of the big commercial publishers uh, in mathematics, well, Elsevier is an important one, Springer is an important one, those are the two biggest. Widely is much less of an important player in Taylor and Francis, and uh, Sage, which I believe is important to sociologists, does not publish in mathematical journals. Um, Springer has a somewhat different relationship with the community. They've done a number of things the community really values, especially book projects, for many, many years. They've kept in touch with the community, so many mathematicians know Springer employees who actually go to meetings and uh, try to keep up on the latest research. While Elsevier has always been hidden behind the curtain, uh, there's very little contact with them. So they hadn't built up any goodwill in the community. I should say the Springer goodwill is being dissipated because of pricing issues, but still there's a very different feeling. So those were probably the major reasons that one focused on Elsevier, but then I had another set of reasons, and I wrote a blog that moved this forward a little bit. I had become involved because I was the president of the Society for Industrial and Applied Mathematics, and many issues of integrity in research publications and ethics came up, so having to deal with plagiary and multiple submission and uh, uh, predatory uh, open access journals and so forth. I'd become involved with many of these issues and studied them, and I was struck by how often when there's a scandal, the journal behind it was Elsevier. Uh, and I had a long collection of examples of this, and some of these bothered me very, very much, and the pattern seemed to be that if Elsevier was caught and it was made public, then there was a retraction or a change of editor, and they hoped to move quietly on. 
without even cleaning up the mess that was left behind. And I didn't think this was satisfactory. So I wrote a blog said, saying that my reasons for joining the boycott, in addition to the pricing and the aggressive bundling policies and the support for Research Works Act, is that they haven't created a culture of ethics and integrity in publishing, and they haven't convinced me that they meet the standards that I need for, if I'm going to cooperate with them. I think all these things came together, and uh, the community was very ready for this. Many people had had their own observations and experiences, and the boycott just took off. So talking about the boycott, you know, you mentioned there are a couple different things that uh, scholars are doing to, you know, contribute to this boycott. As it, like as a young scholar, for example, uh, the thing that scares me about stuff like this or that intimidates me is that, you know, I need to publish stuff. So if you need to publish stuff, um, all the big name journals, they're all published by big name publishers. So to say, okay, well, I just won't submit my articles to any of these journals, that's kind of a self-defeating strategy for someone who needs to get publications to get out there. Uh, but there's more than just just publishing. You mentioned, for example, refusing to um, be a referee for journals and sit on the editorial board and stuff. How can these strategies actually, you know, how, how do you think that all of these combined can actually end up making a difference and be effective? Well, these are, you know, important questions that we've thought about deeply, but we also agree that, you know, there are going to be variations in people's personal responses to these. So what you described in the journals is not true in mathematics. In mathematics, the very best journals are almost all published by nonprofits. So the American Mathematical Society publishes um, some very good journals. The society that I was uh, president of, Society for Industrial and Applied Mathematics, publishes 15 journals, most of which are regarded as top in their sub-discipline. There's the uh, Institute for Mathematical Statistics and the Mathematical Association of America and so forth. There are the university presses, um, which are, are another form of nonprofit, some sitting somewhere between the societies and the um, commercial publishers. And, uh, and then there are commercial publishers that have not taken this route of uh, what seems to be price gouging. So there's a, a variety of choices there where you publish. And it is true that in mathematics, forswearing Elsevier means losing some very good journals, but uh, not losing a, a, a large majority of them by any means, losing a small number of those journals, and not even the very best journals. Mm -hmm. One aspect of it. Of course, it depends on your subdiscipline. There are areas where those journals are more important than other ones. So, but I feel confident that I can uh, uh, do my publishing in other journals that I feel feel more comfortable with, um, without it without it stopping my work from being well disseminated. As far as refereeing, this is a maybe the most troubling one, or the one that um, people differ on the most. I think all of us feel that refereeing is a professional obligation. Uh, so you can't just say, well, I'm not at publishers and publishing. I'm not going to referee papers if you expect people to referee your papers. Uh, but I do plenty of refereeing, and I do plenty of editorial work, and uh, far more than I generate from other people. And I'll continue to do that, but I just won't do that with Elsevier journals as long as I see them as not meeting my ethical standards and uh, creating these other difficulties. One of the topics that I wanted to get into with you is um, why is this why is this happening so fervently in mathematics versus other fields? And maybe that's part of it. There's a tradition of more strong um, 
you know, a society published, you know, exclusively journals. Like, for example, in in sociology, I know that uh, a lot of the biggest journals are American Sociological Association journals. And then they're published through, like, Sage right now, a few years ago with someone else. And that kind of uh, bounces around as opposed to, you know, like you were mentioning, uh, societies kind of publishing their own journals. I mean, maybe, I don't know, maybe that's, maybe that has something to do with it. To be honest, I don't know enough about the sociology journal world to say. So maybe some, one of our listeners can chime in and and educate us on this. Um, but you know, another thing that I've always, I've, I've noticed is things like archive, right? Is it, is it archive.org? Is that the website? It's spelled A A R X I V, correct? That's correct. And this is, this is a big deal in mathematics and a lot of more scientific fields, correct? It's a huge deal. So uh, within sociology and social sciences, as far as I know, it's not. So can you maybe describe that a little bit so that there is an alternative uh, for online self-publishing that a lot of big names have been taking advantage of? So the archive and preprint servers like that are a big picture, a big part of the changing picture. Uh, by the way, the archive really was started by the physicists, where it's even more important than in mathematics, but large parts of mathematics has embraced it. So there are areas in which people publish in which nearly everybody who's active in these areas publishes the preprint version of their paper to, this, um, to the archive. I'm the moderator for one of the subject areas in archive, and I can assure you that there is very, very little filtering or peer review. My job as moderator is to look at six or ten papers go by each day and make sure that they're not ridiculous, they're not uh, rants or uh, completely miscategorized or something like that, but there's no filtering beyond that. Now, as a dissemination mechanism, it is spectacular. It's easy to find things. Uh, They come immediately. They're free to anybody in the world. Uh, it's very cheap. They've made a calculation, and it costs them to host a paper $7 per paper, or they could get that at something under $0.02 a download if they were paid that. So at the moment, they're getting money uh, through grants and subsidies, but there's small amounts of money to handle an immense amount of literature. So what's missing from this? Well, part of it is... um, the, the organization, the metadata, and so forth. But the major thing that's missing from the archive as opposed to a journal is the peer review and certification process. And this is nothing to be downplayed. This is a very, very important thing, the difference between peer-reviewed literature um, that's been carefully, uh, carefully vetted and, um, and just a preprint. Um, so, and that's where I believe the publishers have the most to offer. So it used to be that dissemination was a big part of the publisher's function and business model. I think they're trying to hold on to that, but they can't do it as well as the archive. I often have experiences where there's a journal that our university has a license to, and the website is either not quite working right or so convoluted that it's not recognizing me and giving me access to a paper, and rather than try to get to the bottom of that, it's easier to just go to the archive and download the preprint. Moreover, in mathematics, we've now moved to a point where we said, well, it's outrageous that after you make a preprint and then it goes through reviews, you realize there are some things that have to be changed, there might have been mistakes in the paper, that you leave the preprint up. The author can update their own preprint with... uh, since all the uh, articles are typeset by the author in the the first place, update the preprint and put the final corrected version on the archive. 
I'm not talking about the version where um, the publisher has maybe done the layout and the formatting and used their own fonts and so forth, but where the content has come from the author influenced by the refereeing process. That, to me, clearly belongs to the author and the community, and that should be made freely available. And I think it's been a wonderful thing that the math community is agreeing to this and is making our literature available in this way, and I look forward to when there be close to 100% compliance on that. And I think sociology and the social sciences should consider this very, very seriously. So just to be, just to like understand how this is set up, this is a just kind of a voluntary website. Is there is there a social science or sociology section on the archive now? I have. I should check. Do you know? Yes, and I should check too. I don't know exactly what it takes to create a new section on the archive and uh, uh, whether it's open to that. So I haven't looked in the social sciences. Okay. Yeah, this is, it's very interesting. Um, and you know, I guess another question here is. Uh, this is obviously a discussion that I think a lot of academics will find interesting. Um, but there's clearly some larger issues here. I mean, a lot of this work is, is funded by public institutions and, and public grants and things like that. So is, why should the public care about this? Is, this? is there a larger public problem here that we should be addressing? So when the Research Works Act issue, and aligned with that some other bills like uh, SOPA and PIPA that you've been hearing about, mm. those directly affect the public. So Research Works Act came out of the NIH mandate that said that um, research that they funded, the papers had to be made available on PubMed Central after a delay period. This is something that researchers have welcomed. I think most of us are in this business because we want our ideas to get out there and have an effect. Uh, surely the public has welcomed it. They could get uh, information about government-funded research that re relates to their own health problems and uh, questions for free. And some publishers, instead of seeing this as an opportunity for their work to have more of an impact and have more of a value, saw it as a threat to their business plan. And as I say, Elsevier took this position very strongly. We, we're hoping that... Um, so this bill has now been defeated, thanks in part to the boycott, and we're hoping that uh, these kind of um, uh, mechanisms like PubMed Central that will make uh, uh, scholarly research more widely available will become uh, more and more common in more and more fields and go just beyond biology. We understand that every field is different, and there. So the window of delay in which something is made available is probably different. The exact terms are probably different. And we need a discussion of this that involves all the major stakeholders, including the commercial publishers. Uh, but what we don't need is somebody standing in the door with an ax trying to stop progress from getting through. All right. Well, this has been a fascinating discussion so far. Is there anything else that you wanted to address before we, uh, we, we end the interview here? Anything, any last-minute points that you want to get out there? Well, it would be my hope. I think the case for the boycott is quite strong, and so I hope a lot of your uh, listeners will go to thecostofknowledge.com. From there, you can link to a, a sta carefully written statement of purpose of the boycott and decide to get involved. I think it was extremely important from, from the mathematics point of view that many of the most prominent mathematicians in the world took the time to become leaders in this issue 
helped to contribute to the statement of purpose and publicly declared their involvement. That uh, means a lot to a lot of other people and, and it's enough to convince them to take another look and think about it. And I hope there'll be people from the sociology community who will feel like stepping up to that. All right, as do I. Well, thanks very much for talking to us. This has been really great. Okay, thanks a lot. It's been a pleasure. All right, that's our show. Thanks again for listening. Talk to you soon. Thank you.